Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, it's a special edition of On the Edge with Andrew Gold from Argentina, Buenos Aires to be specific, where I'm reporting on some political unfolding events. Javier Millet has, well, just won and will become president of Argentina, potentially the maddest president in the world. Um, you know, he is supposed to telepathically speak with his dead dog. Uh, he cloned it a bunch of times, spent lo- all his money on that. He does cosplaying. He's a tantric sex professor, but he's also a professor of economics, just one who runs around wielding a chainsaw to symbolize how he's going to break up the political establishment. I'm not sure anyone's been elected anywhere in the world who is quite so anti-establishment. I mean, this this makes, uh, well, I was going to say Trump, but people would say he is the establishment anyway, because he was born into this mad, wealthy, capitalist kind of thing. Javier Millet is just off the grid. So it's going to be interesting. It's going to be fascinating. It's a very scary time for Argentina. But my guest today is a narco-capitalist economic journalist, Joel Bowman. And He's really optimistic. Uh, A lot of people are optimistic in Argentina. A lot of people are very worried. He was up against a far-left candidate called Massa that everyone was just, I think a lot of, well, not everyone, a lot of people were just sick of the same socialist, leftist stuff in Argentina continuing to fail and inflation going through the roof. And it became a case of people voting for the least bad option. uh, And we've ended up with this guy that, has just shocked the world. So my guest today is extremely positive. I try to balance that out and you know you you'll see what you think. I'm interested just also in the character of this man just uh he, he seems to be totally unhinged. So let's have a listen to that. Do go follow Joel Bowman's Substack. The a link will be in the uh description. And lots of fascinating episodes are coming up. But now you're on the edge of Javier Millet's madness with Joel Bowman. So we're in Buenos Aires, Argentina for the elections right now. Journalist Joel Bowman, there's been an earthquake, a political earthquake. What's gone on? Well, uh, it's not every day that you have a chainsaw-wielding, self-described (laughs) anarcho-capitalist Uh, burst onto the scene and disrupt uh, what, I mean, not just regionally here in Latin America, but uh, across the world. Uh, You know, this is the first libertarian, self-described libertarian to be elected to public office or elected to the highest office in the land. So I think all eyes are on Argentina to see if this guy is as crazy uh, as some of his theatrics in the presidential campaign Uh, trail look like they might be or whether he's the real deal. Lots of eyes on Argentina right now. And we're going to talk about the libertarianism and the right wing aspect. Some people say he's right wing, some don't. I know you're quite optimistic about him, uh, but I do want to talk about his madness because I'm just fascinated (laughs) by this guy. What kinds of things are we talking about? Well, uh, he's an Austrian school economist, which sounds, you know, kind of nerdy and, you know, a little sort of corduroy jacketed and a little stuffy, but it's, it's very much outside of the mainstream economics, particularly for here, where you know we've had 75 years of Peronism that has dominated the political and economic landscape. So this was, you know, this is way outside the, the Overton window for mm-hmm. what people would be used to seeing. You know, we've got three generations of people here who are accustomed to some kind of cradle to grave type welfare. 
it's very, very disruptive to have somebody come along and say, we're privatizing practically everything. Uh, and he did this, of course, I alluded to the chainsaw before, he did this when he was on the campaign trail with an actual chainsaw, you know, revving yeah. the motor, the whole kind of theatrics behind it. Uh, you know, for those of your viewers who have seen him before, he kind of looks a little bit like an Argentine Elvis. He's got the mutton chops. He's got the the rock star uh, street cred. So he used to be in a, in a Rolling Stone cover band. I think he's yeah. got all the all the kind of quirks of of um, of a slightly spectrumy academic sort of the mad professor meets rock star look. And so I think he, you know, as they say in politics, the only thing worse than being wrong is being boring. And he's certainly not that. So I don't think anyone's going to accuse him of speaking indirectly. Uh, he's had some choice words for not just all of his opposition, but for the Pope, uh, <laughs> for which, you know, as you can imagine here in Argentina with an Argentine Pope, uh, you know, that didn't necessarily go down so well. But he, he's a man who, who speaks in a very unfiltered manner. And I think even down here in Latin America, uh, you know, where we're used to telenovelas and we're used to over-the-top flair, he has kind of taken it to a whole new level, which has been entertaining to say the least. But as you mentioned, I'm quite sanguine about the uh, the future opportunities here in the country. So let's see what happens next. I think a lot of people are worried uh, just as much about his, his politics as mm. his personality. Um, and a lot of people are suggesting he might be totally unhinged. Right. There's stuff about his dogs and, and uh, telepathy <laughs> and things about like that. Yeah, I, I don't know how much of that is necessarily true, how much he's just kind of playing to the, you know, <laughs> playing to the TikTok audience. Uh, I spoke with, um, with an economist down here earlier who made a, a very good point in that ordinarily we see the youth vote swing pretty hard to the left. I mean, the, you know, the, the old adage, whether, whether or not it's true, is that the youth tend to vote with their heart and then as they get older, they vote with their head. You know, people will take umbrage with that of course, because this sure. is online and people take umbrage with everything. Sure. Um, but in any case, the youth vote swung very heavily in favor of Malay uh, in this particular election. And part of that was because he very much appealed to, you know, the, the kind of meme warrior digital aspects of the campaign. So he kind of eschewed the more traditional routes that many kind of entrenched or establishment politicians would take where they raise money, they make compromises, they kind of glad hand, glad hand in the background. Um, you know, he came to the campaign with very little money. He's, he's not an establishment, you know, critter or, you know, creature of the swamp to use the mm. modern parlance. He's very much an outsider. And so a lot of his campaign was, was organic. It was, it was mimetic, you know, it was viral content that spread online. And so again, he knows how to entertain. There's, yeah. there's a certain, uh, there's a certain paradigm to the to politicking that he seems to have understood very well, and so yeah, he's he's named his dogs whatever. I think it's uh, Friedrich Hayek and uh, Ludwig von Mises. I think he has a Milton Friedman dog or whatever whatever it was. Uh, he claims to have you know that his dead dog told him came to him in a in a dream or an apparition or you know goodness knows what. Um, but he's been able to capture the imagination of people who uh, you know who are used to seeing TikTok videos or, you know, short videos, and he's used that to bring them into the conversation. And then if you look at, you know, some of his longer form interviews, he did one with The Economist a few months back where he sat down for an hour and went through and laid out, you know, piece by piece, his, you know, particular policy, his philosophical background. Um, so, uh, you know, I think there's a little bit of sort of sensationalist bait out there to bring people to the table. But I think that uh, he backs it up with substance when it comes down to it. Mm. I, I, I was surprised when I came out here, uh, just all I was hearing was what a lunatic this guy is. <laughs> and I was quite surprised to see that he'd been a, uh, an economics professor for, right. for a long time. And he had, had a, I, I was made to understand he had no background at all in this and was just some crazy guy. Yeah. But just for a moment, staying on the unhinged aspect, I, I, there, there, there must, I, I feel like there's some truth to it. And I gather he was bullied at school quite quite severely and that his parents um, beat him physically and, and were verbally abusive with him. He, he considered them dead for some time. He's also sort of screams a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, an already volatile country like this, mm -hmm. that's a bit worrying, isn't it? Um, I don't know. I think he would probably say, and I'm certainly no, you know, just flat out apologist for Malay, but the phenomenon is very, is very interesting. I think he would, you know, he would say, well, I, 
spent my youth with textbooks, economics textbooks as a way to kind of escape, you know, the craziness that was going on uh, around him at the time. And, mm. you know, uh, getting beaten by your parents is certainly, you know, not a recipe for success, but, um, you know, I think there are other things that are more worrying in the country, particularly from from a perspective of somebody who's looking down the barrel of entering office where we have, you know, something approaching 200% inflation. And I'm sure we'll get into those in, into those figures, but there are there are bigger and scarier things in this country to worry about than, um, you know, Malay's formative years or whether it was dumped at the prom or, or, or <laughs> yeah I well I'm so I'm really torn because I'm in between thinking this stuff's all irrelevant and, and interesting if anything like okay you've got this guy who's different we're so used to uh statesmen like presidents and prime ministers and things that even the word statesman like I suppose comes from the idea that a politician is supposed to be quite dry obviously Trump shook that up a little bit and, and it's been shaken up previously in Argentina to some extent as well but he does not fit that mold at all uh the telepathy with his dogs. I think the dogs were saying that he, he'll be a, he'll be elected by Argentina at some point. That's the, the, the dogs were right. The dogs were right. I had to think about that. Um, <laughs> another thing is that he's a tantric sex instructor. Mm -hmm. That can't be ignored in a YouTube video, of course. Right, uh, right. If this were the Guardian, we might not have to mention yeah. it. Or maybe they would actually. But they, uh, they lead with that. <laughs> I would. I I should have led with that. Yeah. Um, but he. I mean, that's something. He ejaculates once every three months. I, I'm learning something about uh, about Malay right now. What does that actually. say to you of his patience? Yeah, maybe he's a little pent up. Maybe he, <laughs> maybe, maybe he needs some some release. I don't know. It's um, I haven't delved you know particularly into the minutiae of his of his sex life, but uh, you know whatever works. He played uh, football as a goalkeeper. They're supposed to be mad as well. They always say goalkeepers are mad, and he's a cosplayer, and so is his. Deputy. I'm just mentioning these things yeah, early yeah. on to give people uh, who don't know an idea. Right. Um, so they dress up as like Superman and stuff right, like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, I, th I think with the theatrics, it's it's sexy and it leads and it's and it's you know you, you're right. We should have led with tantric sex tantric. coach. That's 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 called burying the headline <laughs> there. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I think you know there he's a very very um, you know unorthodox character to say the least. I think Argentina is in a very very unorthodox place. And so I think there's a there's a level of desperation among the people here who are facing really serious issues, you know, all, all kind of kidding aside. And I think that, you know, they're ready for they're ready for a change of direction from what they've had before, which which means, you know, that you have to look outside outside the box. And they repudiated the, you know, the kind of typical uh, more the, the more kind of traditional conservative candidates. Uh, early on, and then the you know the kind of coalition that built up between the the sort of orphaned conservative candidates who who saw that their uh, their candidate was ousted in the second round, they kind of globbed onto Malay. So it was a, it was a you know whether you're speaking to working class people, you're speaking to uh, students, you're speaking to you know those sort of clinging to the the, the bottom rungs of the of the socioeconomic ladder. It was a, it's a really really broad sort of big big political tent that he's that he's built for himself. Um, and so I think, yeah, it's, he's, he's definitely an unorthodox character. That's that's kind of that's kind of inarguable. But one thing that I see a lot of in the mainstream press, particularly from the States and uh, from Australia, where where I hail from, is a tendency to uh, draw kind of these false equivalencies. Oh, Donald Trump has funny hair. This guy has funny hair. Therefore, you know, I, I, I refer to this as the Charlie, as the Charlie Chaplin Adolf Hitler fallacy. There's, right. there are, uh, they, they are alike in very superficial and not yeah. very important ways. The way that they're, you know, the way that they can be differentiated is, I think, more interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, I was thinking about that as well uh, with regards to people like Elon Musk who are saying, you know, oh, great, now they're going to do well. I was actually, by coincidence, in Argentina when uh, Trump came into power in the States, and I was with a lot of expats, young expats, and young expats tend to be very liberal and, and, and to the left. So there was a lot of crying among them. And I remember thinking, but I wonder what will actually happen. Mm. And I know I'm going to get slated for saying this, but I don't know if that much did happen i'm just one of those moments i'm just thinking i can see it being clipped all over social I'm media waiting for idiot. the comments to just light up underneath this <laughs> yeah well here's seventeen thousand people who are dead because of trump or right. something right but fine but but dead that happened with every president and, and i believe i'm right in saying he's he's pretty much the only president who hasn't had a war 
Um, so, so people are people are reasonably okay, fine with Trump. It wasn't quite the disaster, I don't think, on a geopolitical level as people ha- thought it might be. But this is different, as you say. Mm. So, one thing I was thinking is Trump was the leader of one of the two uh, mainstay parties that had a huge uh, support system behind him, uh, and, and wasn't really able to get all that much done. Whereas I imagine that Malay, he's coming in just like on his own, isn't he? Yeah, he is. It's uh, I mean, it's a curious kind of uh, admixture here because. You know, he's very much the outsider, uh, kind of like Trump, but very unlike Trump. He does, he's not a, a billionaire. You know, he's mm-hmm. a, he's a mo- he's comes from sort of modest background. He lives mm-hmm. in a in a you know, not in Trump Tower. Yeah, <laughs> goes, his, his dad was a bus driver. Dad is a bus driver. Yeah, so he comes from very, you know, a very kind of salt of the earth uh, kind of background. Um, even now, he again doesn't live in some gilded you know penthouse somewhere in Fifth Avenue or whatever it is. Um, but more importantly, he's where Trump might have been said by his advocates, and, and I wouldn't count myself necessarily uh, among them, but they would say he's, he's very business friendly. I think Mr. Malay paints himself as very market friendly. And there, there's a sort of a, a subtle distinction there, but what it I think means is that <clears throat> it's a shortcut to corporatism and to cronyism and sort of this like state capitalism that you can tend to get with typical conservatives who paint themselves as very friendly towards businesses and then go out and make deals, mm-hmm. preferential deals. There's, you know, taxes and, and uh, you know, regulations for this group. There's subsidies for this group. And they play favorites with the economy rather than what I think Malay's position as a kind of lay, more laissez-faire kind of fellow is, which is let's stand back and be market friendly and let the, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Another difference is that Trump wasn't uh, going to be in charge of a country with such a tumultuous history. Um, all over South America, of course, we're used to populists, very exciting people getting in. Everyone's very excited. And I, d- I mean, does it ever work? I'm just thinking off the top of my head because it just seems like it always, I mean, Venezuela is, is the, I mean, I, I only say this because I was saying to my uh, fiance's family, Argentinian people, I was just saying, oh, well, you know, with Trump or people worried about Brexit and Boris and there are problems okay but it was all fine in the end and they were like yes but look at Venezuela look at right. some of the places in, in South America right. is that a concern uh I think it is I th- but I think not in the way that that most people kind of tend to view it and that is that the you know Venezuela or you know the Juan Perón being kind of the the genesis of of 75 years or 70 years of of kind of big paternalistic government um, function down here in Argentina. He was he and his his wife who followed were, you know, very charismatic people. You know, you, you don't want to see charismatic Latin uh, leaders yelling at you know at the hordes from balconies. It generally ends in, in yeah. bloodshed and, and and tears or or, or worse. Um, but I think in those cases, or, mus- or, or musicals, or, or, or musicals, yeah, yeah, and you know, not necessarily in that order. Yeah. But the the idea, for example, with Mr. Chavez and and um, you know preceding uh, Maduro up in in Venezuela, I think what happened is the Argentine people have seen the road to Caracas, for example, and they know that it's paved maybe with good intentions and maybe with charisma and um, you know maybe with a pretty lady from a from a balcony as with Evita Perón. Yeah. Um, but they've seen where that has gone, and that has gone in disastrous directions such that we have a huge influx of Venezuelan, mm. um, you know, you would call them political asylum seekers or economic immigrants or, or what have you, but they're, they're fleeing what is essentially a war zone in their country right now, uh, flying under the banner of socialism. And they get down here and they tell their Argentine co-evils, their cohort in, you know, in Uber drivers, Rappi drivers, a lot of them in the gig economy down here, they say, hey, we know how this ends. And it sucks. So yeah. we, we don't want that. Uh, and so I think Argentines in this last, last election, they mapped the road to Caracas and they mapped the road to whatever, pick your, pick your Singapore, let's say, you know, sort of open, more, much more open laissez-faire economy. And, you know, it doesn't take a genius to decide that Singapore might be more <laughs> advantageous. We have a lot of Venezuelan, uh, you know, asylum seekers here. Not a whole lot of, you know, wealthy Singaporeans that are, you know, on the next plane to Argentina because of the abundance of economic opportunities for them here. Maybe that'll change in the future, but um, yeah. yeah, it is mad. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And it's, it's mad that 
despite the hyperinflation in Argentina and despite the problems with the economy, you get all these people escaping Venezuela to come here. And you're right. going, wow. And these are doctors and lawyers who oh, yeah. are, as you say, in the gig economy right now, their lives have turned completely upside down. And that's when you see it up front. You talk about the road to uh, Caracas. What about the road to Santiago de Chile? Mm -hmm. uh, Pinochet, well, that's an example of someone who was further on the right. I don't actually know the ins and outs of, of sure. the politics. So, so is that, isn't that more a concern as well? Because obviously Venezuela on the left, uh, Chile, I believe, was on, on the right. Right, right, with Pinochet. I think there's, there's a, a kind of common misconception here um, with a, a kind of right-left spectrum. And, and this will get a little bit more into, into Malay's um, uh, political philosophy as, a, as an anarcho-capitalist or you know, a libertarian with an economics background. Those two things are kind of uh, synonymous. The idea that most people would map somebody's political bent on a spectrum between extreme left, you know, lefty loonies, whatever, and far right, you know, fascists and, and crazies. Uh, an anarcho-capitalist would look at it as rather a paradigm between tyranny and freedom or authoritarianism and liberty. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about, but in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. So the idea that, you know, you could have a, an extreme leftist uh, in um, Maduro, for example, in, in Venezuela, or somebody on the extreme right. And, you know, the world is, has no shortage of, of examples on the extreme right for the 20th century from whom we can, mm -hmm. we can choose our own disaster. Yeah. Um, Videla uh, here as well. Was it Videla? In the military dictatorship in, mm. the, in, in, the, in the 1980s. And yeah, didn't so. he talk it down, Millet? I gather that he sort of has, has a few times sort of almost apologized for or, or mitigated that. Yeah, I think his, I don't know necessarily the ins and outs, but I think his 2IC, his, his running mate, is sort of has some um, more to do with that. Um, I'm, I'm not particularly au fait with, mm. uh, with that 
aspect. That's a bit worrying though, isn't it? I mean, the whole, the modern culture of Argentina is founded on that sort of general consensus that the dictatorship right. was, that the right-wing dictatorship was very, very wrong. Right. And he's been seen to be a bit friendly to that. I mean, that's that's got to be a worry. Yeah, I think there's, look, there's lots of challenges ahead for Malay. And I think, uh, I think it was in Argentina rejoined uh, the sort of democratic world uh, with free and fair elections in 1983. Mm -hmm. And so 40 years later, he is the presidential candidate with the single highest percentage of votes of, you know, any candidate of the last four, 40 years, right or left. And I think it's because of a kind of staunch repudiation of both of those, those perceived um, panaceas to what, what troubles Argentina. So he's been uh, very harsh on, for example, Patricia Bullrich, who was the, the conservative candidate here, she kind of you know came around to his invitation and big open tent in the end uh, mm -hmm. and endorsed him. But you know the, there was no love loss between the conservatives and the libertarian camp during the during the campaign trail. It, I mean, it ended up with with Massa, who was Sergio Massa is the uh, minister of the economy here, um, and so it, it ended up a two horse race um, in the final vote in the ballotage. But mm -hmm. yeah. Malay, to go back to that idea of, of sort of redefining the paradigm between a, a state, whether it's a military state or whether it is a, a socialist utopia, uh, Marxist utopia as in Venezuela, I think uh, a true anarcho-capitalist and it will, be remain, it will remain to be seen whether or not uh, Mr. Malay fills those boots uh, as, a, as a man of his word, but a true anarcho-capitalist would look at all forms of totalitarian statism as evil. Hmm. So, I, so yeah, it's a nice idea, isn't it? And I suppose in many respects, it's sort of the Elon Musk of if Elon Musk could rule a country because he's <laughs> he's of some of the tech guys who are a bit this way. Mm. Uh, but then also, you know, a little bit worrying that he has showed some sympathetic side to that dictatorship, and which is so important in the Argentinian collective memory. Right. So I guess it remains to be seen on that. Yeah, point. I mean, I I would uh, on that front only sort of turn it over to the Argentine people who have been here, many of whom lived through that horrendous period in the 80s. And, you know, to see them uh, come out with, you know, delivering such a mandate to Mr. Malay, uh, a 12 point margin uh, between the two. You know, I wasn't here in the 1980s. Mm. I was still in, you know, I, I had hair back then. It was, mm. it was a long, long time ago. Um, but I think the people who, who lived here and who knew what was happening at that point and then have heard Mr. Malay on the campaign trail, have seen what he's offered vis-a-vis -vis Sergio Massa uh, and his other opponents in the Conservative Party and have decided that actually the big state's not for us and we want to go with the Rolling Stones cover band, sex guru, tantric rock star. <laughs> um, I, think, I think I'd leave it in their, in their, uh, in their hands. So it came down to a two-horse race, and they've got this different system here that we don't have in the UK or the US, but a lot of people do want a system like that because it allows more, I suppose, exciting uh, parties to have a chance. I gather it's like it's a few rounds, isn't it? And then so, so you can vote for who you really want rather than like in the UK you vote for or America, the one you, you don't like the least. Right. Although in the end, it did sort of work that way because a lot of people, maybe centrists, were going, okay, so we've got this guy who's completely bonkers, but maybe can change stuff. And on the left, it's more, the other guy was Massa, who was just more of the same. And, and people were just completely confused. It was, so how can we, I guess, explain to people who've not been in Argentina uh, with broad strokes, what has been going on the last few decades and Kirchneris, uh, Kirchnerism, mm -hmm. um, sort of, is it far left sort of things? Yeah. And what's going on? Yeah, uh, Peronism, Kirchnerism, which is kind of the sort of unholy spawn of, uh, mm. of Peronism. Oh, I should just say Peron, just for, I know we alluded to it, to it uh, earlier. Some people don't know anything about Argentina and because, well, you know, people don't know about every country. And uh, that's, that is that Evita film uh, that right. Madonna was in, that's, that she was his wife. Wife, is that right? I think so. Yes. Uh, so go, go on, sorry. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, very sort of, you know, brief and broad brushstrokes, but it was uh, in 1930, Argentina established their first central bank. Uh, before this, it was, you know, it wasn't sort of a libertarian utopia, but they had sort of minimal volatility with regards to inflation. Um, you know, as as you know, this was called the Paris of the South. It mm -hmm. was a hugely prosperous land. Uh, they had, you know, a very robust export economy. Uh, they were, you know, welcomed in the international community, taken very seriously. 
Um, by the 1950s, after 20 years of central bank meddling in the price of money and fiddling knobs and setting interest rates in exactly the way that Austrian school economists, of which Millet is a devotee, warned, uh, inflation, you know, volatility started kind of going rampant. Uh, we had mixed price signals. People were experiencing uncertainty at a level that they hadn't before. And Perón came to power, fast forward in 1950s, early 1950s, with this kind of essentially a new deal for the Argentines and saying, hey, we're, we're here to take care of you. Uh, you know, we're offering this very sort of paternalistic approach to, um, to the economy. This is in a post-World post War, post War II uh, setting. And so for on and off, and you, you mentioned uh, the, the perforation to Peronism in the 80s, on and off, there's been, you know, some little sort of snippets and very reactionary right wing, um, you know, pendulum swings mm -hmm. during the during the ensuing um, 70 odd years, 75 years almost. Um, but by and large, the, the economy has been in the hands of what Mr. Malay himself terms the political caste, uh, disparagingly. And, and, and they have essentially taken what was once uh, an extremely prosperous land with, uh, I mean, you travel around this land and very quickly, it's, it's abundantly clear how rich the area is. It's super rich in natural resources, in minerals, in energy. The people here are, are hyper-literate and hyper-literary. So, you know, their gods are Maradona, Messi, but also Jorge Luis Borges and Cortazar and Ocampo. And, you know, they have a very, very rich cultural history uh, of intellectualism and so there's there's all of the of the resources here that you would expect them to still be a powerhouse in the world, uh, and yet they have had this 75 year experiment with sort of brief pauses and oftentimes should be said horrific pauses, um, and this is the result. We have now 200 percent inflation. The official figures around 143 or 145 percent or something like this. Uh, Steve Hankey, a professor in the United States who is advising Malay on the dollarization of the economy, puts the number at more like 200%. But in any case, we're counting in tenths here, where most countries count in you know tenths uh, yeah. of a percentage for their inflation. So it's it's subtly wild. Um, for, I think for people who don't know much about the economy, can you, in a very like layman term terms, just say what, what does that mean? 200% inflation, like what something that's worth something one year and then the next. Yeah, well, it means that you have to it means that you have to carry, you know, enormous bricks of largely useless money around because mm. it, uh, the the value of the Argentine peso is just atrophying. It's you know, it's it's a. It's, so if you've got a thousand pesos one year, what's it worth? So a thousand pesos. Uh, when I left the country, I flew north for the summer this year. Uh, one dollar was about three hundred and fifty pesos. And when I returned, that same one dollar could buy you over a thousand pesos. So mm -hmm. it had, it had collapsed. In you know, and you do the multiplication, and you soon work out that, you know, now you're exchanging a thousand dollars, you know, for expenses during a, a month or a quarter or whatever your your period is, and you're getting a block of a million pesos. It's a thousand thousand peso notes, and you know, I'm sure your viewers have seen those photos from. Um, from Weimar Germany, or you know, the, the Polish Zloty, the Hungarian Pango, the Zim, Zim dollar, like you know, the we've got a whole alphabet worth of, hmm. of examples um, of what happens when hyperinflation ruins a nation's economy, and what it does is it is it also infects other aspects of of the body politic at large. So you can't make contracts. Uh, credit markets all of a sudden seize up. You can't get loans. Yeah, mortgage. Uh, you, you can't set prices. There's no. There's no mortgage market here. The yeah. interest rates are at 150. percent I mean, you've got to like, pay for a house in cash of like a million thousand <laughs> peso notes. It's insane. I'm walking around now. I don't want to advertise. Well, this won't go out while I'm still in Argentina. Right, right. We're on the plane. Stacks, by the way. <laughs> stacks 
of of one thousand uh, peso notes. It's, yeah. They need to, but every time I come back here, they're printing new notes so that you can keep up. Because otherwise, it's just mad. I told you before we started that uh, my first cab, uh, I got in a cab, and it was the first time I'd been here in three years. And I I misread where the where the dot was in the in the price of the taxi. So I gave him five hundred pesos uh, for something that was supposed to be two hundred pesos, and I th- which is like I don't know what fifty p, fifty cents, twenty p. Uh, and I thought oh, I've given a thirty cents tip or whatever, and I was really happy with myself. And he was like, no, 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 no. You know, you got to give way more than that. And I was like, oh right, some of these thousands. Then you got to get the suit, get the trundle out, and it's yeah. the maddest thing over here. And it's scary to watch. You know, it is scary. And he wants to introduce the dollar system. Right. People are worried because that's introduced. That's that happening in Ecuador, and Ecuador's economy apparently is not something to behold. W- what is the purpose of it? Well, Ecuador's economy has one of the lowest rates of inflation on the. In Latin America, right? regionally, uh, the, the same professor, Stephen Hankey, was responsible for the dollarization program in Montenegro in 99, and then I think it was 2001 with, with Ecuador. They have a particular set of problems that are germane to that particular jurisdiction, uh, mm-hmm. that particular uh, sort of crime scene outline to stick with the anarcho-capitalist parlance. But yeah, um, but yeah so what Malay has proposed is... is similar to, to those uh, policies in those countries. But he's recognized here that for large parts of the Argentine com- uh, economy, it's dollarized already. If you want to buy any sort of big ticket item here, if you want to purchase a house, if you're purchasing a car, mm. if, you're, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if you're making large transactions, it, uh, these are all in dollars already. Nobody settles for pesos. Um, and it, actually, it's, it's quite... Controversial. There are there are soy farmers right now who are sitting on their yearly yield, uh, and they've put giant tarpaulins over the top of them because they they can't set, they can't bring them to market in exchange for pesos because they'll get a huge influx of pesos, and by the end of the month they'll have lost pick a number 10, 12, 15 percent of their yearly salary. Yeah, and this in a country where forty percent of the population are beneath the poverty line. So the the so you have 40% of the people who can't get enough calories in the day and the pricing mechanisms are so, I don't know if I can swear on this yeah. <laughs> program, but they're shot to bits. And so, the, and so you have farmers who are saying, I will bring this to market tomorrow. If only we could get a fair price. If only we could know that our profits weren't going to just, you know, just hemorrhage for the next few months. And so this creates this increasing discord, uh, you know, politically, economically. So when I mentioned before that when the price of money goes wonky, that it affects everything in an economy, I mean, it affects people's meals in an economy. It, it, it affects, the, uh, you know, businessmen's, uh, you know, ability to conduct even the most basic of commercial arrangements that, that you and I just sort of take for granted uh, in, other, in other countries. And so I think, you know, when we look at some of the some of the measures that Mr. Malay is proposing, particularly economically, um, they, they are unorthodox. Mm-hmm. You know, they. they but he he understands uh, he understands the situation. I think very well. He's he's diagnosed which he's diagnosed the problem very well. And I think the, the, this is something that we haven't really seen in at least seventy five years in this country. And I don't know that we've seen it. Uh, around the world in a country of this or an economy of this size, that is somebody running for government saying government is the problem. (laughs) Government is not the solution to these problems. These problems exist because the government has caused them. And thus the chainsaw, thus the, you know, kind of theatrical uh, antics on the road. And, um, and yeah, again, there's, there's a lot of work to be done because, you know, some of these policies are unproven. Some of them are untested. Um, but again, we, we know what happens when, when you continue down this road from 200% inflation soon becomes 500% and it's, you know, the toothpaste is out of the tube and you know, there's no putting it back. So, so unless they want to end up like Zimbabwe or, you know, any of the other aforementioned uh, economies that mm-hmm. eventually had to dollarize anyway in, in Zimbabwe's case, um, then, you know, people were ready for, for something new. Yeah, a chain, it can't continue in this way. I mean, just to come here to the studio, I had to go through the city with a, a big sack of money, which is just outrageous. Um, it, it is bonk. I suppose what I'm thinking as well is when you say these other countries that had hyperinflation, often that did lead to extreme mm. leaders who who did a lot of bad stuff. I mean, yep. the G- German inflation is a huge part of what what's led to Hitler. Mm-hmm. So that's what 
that's the that's the downside, the potential yeah. downside. Well, I think that's I think that falls in Massa's lap. I mean, Sergio Massa is the man who brought us two hundred percent inflation, and so I think um, you know, and it's it's the the problem is is the, the rot is even deeper than this. In two thousand, the Argentine government ac accounted for or consumed. Uh, depending on how you want to look at it, something like 30% of the national GDP here. Uh, by the time we got to 2020, that had grown to 40%. Uh, before the election, it was something like 45%. Mm. So, you know, the helpful analogy is that, you know, this serpent, this Ouroboros, the yeah. mythological creature just eating its own tail. Like this is, this is the way that, that uh, this is the way that an economy just consumes itself. The private sector doesn't grow. It's been completely strangulated. And you have essentially the road to massive, uh, you know, public discontent. And, you know, as you alluded to before, this ends up with the rise of somebody, you know, uh, extremist. So I, th I think the, the parents that have gotten us to 200% would certainly have gotten us to three, four, five hundred percent and beyond. And so diagnosing the problem as, uh, as originating in the state itself and working to cut back at, uh, at that problem is, is I think the first step mm. to be done. I definitely, yeah, I, there's definitely an issue with some, some of the socialism uh, that's ingrained in, I think, in my experience, Argentinian attitudes. I mean, the unionization of, yeah. of, of things, the, the lack of being able to get like Apple over here. Right, right. This is a really modern country and you can't have those kinds of big companies here. They've got different systems and mm -hmm. things. You walk around, there are people paying like these weird bills. There, there are queues, uh, lines going around the corners of the streets for people to pay bills in a particular way. Right. Most people are not paying taxes, uh, you know, and then every now and then they get a chance to pay taxes uh, uh, and admit that they weren't paying them before without getting in <laughs> trouble. What is it going to white or something? So there were all these weird kinds of things. and. Um, um, the protectionism, I suppose, and, and you do sort of want, oh, come on, open up and 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 let let's see what Argentina can do because the, the as you said before, like the, all the ingredients in the country are here. I just wonder if that if that culture is too ingrained by this point. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the big question right now because mm. you know there's there's one side where, uh, well, to go back to the the kind of. Millet's libertarian philosophy the, within libertarianism as a as a philosophy uh, as a political philosophy there's the idea that you either approach the problem in a kind of gradualist manner and you say okay we're going to phase out these particular um, you know bureaus or you know this this lard in the system we're going to we're going to slowly phase this out because we have people on welfare multi-generational you know welfare we have people who are in the public sector that are you know, that have been there for a long time that depend on wages and handouts and subsidies and et cetera, et cetera. So the one school of thought says, okay, we need to gradually ease this off uh, in order to kind of wean the populace off the sort of teat of the state, uh, if you will, or teach them how to walk, uh, Peter analogy. And But then the other is, uh, is this kind of shock therapy where you basically come in and say, this is going, this is going, this is going. And that's, more obviously the Malay style. Uh, and so I think people are wondering, well, what happens next? What happens when we don't have, as he has uh, announced uh, on December the 11th of this year, all of the, of the infrastructure programs in the country? So no more roadworks, no, no more government roadworks, no more government bridges, pipes, et cetera, et cetera. So then you think, well, how does, how does that yeah, work? Yeah, how does that work? How, how does that work? Um, so there's a potential crisis there, which has to be managed, obviously. There could be people yeah. on the streets. I expect there probably will be. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. 
No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. There'll be, there'll be people on the streets regardless. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't worry about that. But, uh, but on the other side, you see, okay, so there's, there's a huge potential here because people don't typically like driving around on massively potholed roads with, you know, sewage up to their knees. I mean, there's a very real world demand for people to live in, you know, reasonable conditions, be it, you know, with regard to healthcare or education or whatever. So it's not as if there's no opportunity for private contractors to come in compete with each other, which is another thing that Argentina hasn't had mm. for 75 years. It hasn't had, you know, profit-hungry capitalist pigs coming International. in at each other's yeah. throats to try and deliver a better service at a lower price, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, you know, when we start with the kind of small bricks and we say, all right, well, rather than just this one big monolithic, you know, coercive monopoly that is the state, which anyway delivers exceedingly subpar results yeah. um corruption you know, corruption i mean just the whole you know the whole mess it's essentially just like the u.s postal service with you know rifles it's, it's like completely anyway so rather than than settle for that let's get some foreign direct investment into the country let's yeah. let's turn it over to you know people who care about the future who are not just going to work to get a paycheck and to you know get their union vote and whatever let's make sure that we you know that uh that the services that the people of argentina demand and deserve are met with people who can provide them adequately hmm. i remember when uber first came here uh the uber drivers were getting shot at by right. taxi mafias yeah and i remember that was the point when I was, I was a bit younger and I was starting to learn a little bit about politics and things and just a little bit. And, and I thought, wow, that, how can that be then? Why, why would the taxi driver try and offer a better service if they can just shoot anyone who, who tries <laughs> to do something at a better, better rate or anything like that? Speaking of corruption, what was that story about Kitchener, the, 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 the uh, what's, what's, I forgot her name, shit. Christina? Uh, Christina, yeah. What was that stuff about Christina Kirchner, the president and a, a monastery and, and hiding oh, money? Yeah, I, re I remember. I was abroad uh, for that. I forget where I was traveling, but my, my friends down here sent me the, the kind of video footage that was doing the rounds where they were throwing, talking of sacks of cash, they were, they were throwing, you know, massive like potato sacks stuffed with not with Argentine pesos, which would have been bad enough, but with US dollars, uh, you know, throwing them over, hiding them out in some monastery. There was just all kinds of different stories that were that were kind of uh, leaking out. I don't know the, the the particulars of that specific story, but it's it's was kind of par for the course. Mm. I mean, when you get when you get uh, a state that has that has eaten up so much of the of of the private economy, there's money gushing out everywhere. But it all belongs to that caste, that that political caste. It doesn't go to the, you know, despite their sort of yip yappy rhetoric, it doesn't go to the people on the streets. That's, mm. you know, there was uh, another story with uh, former President Christina Kirchner, you know, her, her shoe collection, her, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of Louboutin shoes. Ah. And, you know, meanwhile, up on the balcony talking about woe to the poor and, you know, hoping never to have to shake hands, you know, with them or be seen amongst them, but for a photo opportunity. So it was, it's very much uh, a, a political cast of rules for thee, not for, not for me. She gave the people free football. That was a big thing, football yeah. para todos. Right, and right. then, so that was like, well, okay, we, we're living in poverty, but we've got football for free on the TV. Yeah. So that's something. It's, it's bread and bread and circuses, the old uh, yeah. Roman poet Juvenal with his uh, Panamet circuses. They, they were giving out actual entertainment <laughs> via via the the state-owned media here rerunning old uh, football matches maradona in his glory days you know getting the getting the civic pride uh, up and meanwhile handing out uh chori pans handing out bread with sausages in them you know so kind yeah. of the lowest you know cheapest calories just keeping people completely dependent on the state and saying hey you vote for us and we'll keep the entertainment and the cheap and empty calories coming and you know, for a long time, that worked, and for a long time, people were satisfied with that. But you know, we have to we have to remember that. Uh, I think it, it was at the 
at the turn of this century, Argentina had something like 28% of people living under that poverty line. It's now 40%. So you've got an enormous growth in people that ha, you know, have fallen into really serious dire straits. And this at a time when, when countries around the world have crushed global poverty. I mean, everywhere else with an even moderately functioning economy has been able to, you know, to significantly reduce uh, their levels of poverty, their levels of abject poverty. And during the same time, we've had all these you know, technological advancements. We've mm -hmm. had the rest of the world has kind of moved on. Argentina hasn't just, you know, treaded water, it's underwater for, for many people. And so, again, that, that kind of just fueled, uh, I think, the fire in the belly of lots of people who were looking at the Massa, you know, train to Caracas, which was, you know, this is, the, the track had already been laid, no doubt, by union rail workers. Mm. Uh, but then on the other side, they thought, okay, the traditional conservative candidate, uh, you know, who's, who, uh, kind of ran on a on a very sort of you know no nonsense uh, police um, you know security type angle, um, which I thought could look a little bit more like what you were describing earlier with regards to you know jackboots on the streets and that kind of stuff. I think the population saw some light down both of those tunnels and thought maybe they're oncoming trains. Maybe we maybe we we, we better uh, you know opt for something different. I think the corruption that you talked about, I mean, that's a that's a, a huge part of some of the problems that you get with some aspects of, of socialism. Mm -hmm. And if anyone speaks out, we had this big issue here that I don't know if people, other people will be aware of. To do, do you remember the Nisman thing going on? Yeah. Controversy. So, I mean, that was that was speaking out, I guess, about the um, corrupt, the alleged corruption of, I don't want to say without alleged, because I don't right. want to, I don't know where I might end up, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the uh, hiding, working, was it colluding with Iran? For terrorism, yeah, I think there was there was money changing hands that wasn't supposed to be changing hands, as, uh, and then somebody was going to be uh, testifying or something, and he was kind of found not among the army of the upright uh, in the morning, having been assassinated, slashed, killed himself. You know, it's one of these Epstein type yeah. stories where he got suicided, or you know, nobody nobody knows to this day. But it's exactly what you would expect with kind of you know deep state spooks and goons and and all, all the rest. Of it. Mm. <laughs> that was the it was a terrorist attack on a Jewish community center. In the nineties, yeah. Uh, and that, yeah, no, no one knows exactly what happened, but it looked like some Christina's family was about to maybe be exposed or something. And it looks like lots of people covering their tracks. <laughs> and when there's lots of people that need their tracks covered, and then there, there's a body at the end of it. Yeah, it doesn't look good, whatever, whatever the case was. Yeah, Nisman was found dead and some journalists covering it were then followed as well and had to leave the country. That's the kind of thing that goes on. And it's it's just it's just hard for a lot of people in other Western countries. And I still I see this as a Western country in many respects. Mm -hmm. you, you don't realize the poverty you speak of in many parts of uh, Buenos Aires, you don't really necessarily notice it immediately. And then right. suddenly you're struck by it. Right. It's scary. Moving um, on to more social aspects, a lot of people that I've spoken to just on the, the streets of Buenos Aires while I've been here are concerned about the, well, that Argentina had been making social steps of progress mm -hmm. with regards to things like abortion, mm -hmm. uh, which went pro-choice. And he, it, it seems like Millet is going to turn that back. And people are also suggesting that he has some form of homophobia, that he, you know, he's a devout Catholic. Mm -hmm. Are these concerns for modern liberals and libertarians? Yeah, yeah. I think, I don't know uh, necessarily on the, on the abortion uh, front. I haven't, haven't followed that super closely. Um, but I think one of the one of the aspects that we can uh, kind of underscore about libertarians in general is, it, you know, it's the radical notion that other people are not your property. And so the idea that, you know, somebody might privately and I don't know Mr. Malay's feelings on, you know, on uh, on LGBT, et cetera, rights or or um, obviously not speaking uh, with any intimate knowledge of, of uh of his feelings on that subject, but I think any libertarian worth their salt, even if they disagreed with somebody else's pick a you know lifestyle or use of drugs or or you know sexual proclivities or whatever it happened to be, they would restrain from restricting those people from being able to do what they wanted to do. So I, I mean I don't know. I don't think it's necessarily. Uh, I don't think that the libertarian position on uh, gay rights, for example, would be 
more government involvement in mm. regulating this. I think it would be more of a kind of why was the government involved in granting you permission to love each other anyway? It, it, you know, it should have been, hey, it's it's not about inviting, it's not about getting the state's permission to acknowledge your matrimonial status. It's about you acknowledging your matri matrimonial status. You can have private contracts that, you know, invite your spouse into, you know, to your bedside at a hospital or wh wh whatever it happens to be. You can, you can settle that civilly without the state kind of coming in and officiating at, you know, same-sex weddings or, or, or whatever. That, that should be something settled privately and not really any of anybody mm -hmm. else's business, including certainly, I mean, you know, nothing kills the, kills the vibe and the romance, like having a state official at the wedding yeah. telling you, all right, you may kiss the bride. You're like, gee, thanks. Or kiss the other groom yeah. if you are. The groom. Kiss the groom. Or kiss yeah, the, have some kissing. Just everyone just, kiss. Just everybody oh. kiss. It's now state sanctioned. It's state sanctioned. State sanctioned love. That's Seal of real, approval. It's a real turn on. Well, <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the funny thing was actually, I kept getting told by friends of mine, and I respect their opinions as well, of course. And I know there's a lot of concern mm -hmm. around this, that they are worried about, um, you know, oh, he's going to be homophobic. And, I, and I, I think it's very possible, you know, he's a devout Catholic. It may be that he does have issues with gay people but my understanding having done a little bit of research into it was that that he like you say is actually in favor of um gay marriage uh gender whatever letting people just be be who they are the abortion one is i think where where there might be a big issue and that, that is a big issue in argentina That's specifically because there's a very recent history with that that changed and it was a huge cultural moment uh for argentina so and i can see how a libertarian, as you say, you know, if you say no one's anyone's property, you can you can go either side of the abortion with right. that, with that philosophy. Depending if you're the the mother or the fetus. Yeah, I can see that. Um, but yeah, it's definitely know. it's. I mean, you know, on that on that topic, and it, uh, you know, for your viewers who are looking at this, uh, realizing perhaps not perhaps realizing that we're recording this on Thanksgiving uh, <laughs> down here in Argentina. Thanksgiving is, it's not a Thanksgiving unless you have an abortion debate with somebody or a gun <laughs> debate or a climate debate or some hot button issue. But uh, yeah, he's, he's gonna have to navigate that. And I think, um, you know, as with, you know, the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the United States pushed mm -hmm. that back to, uh, back to the states uh, to decide. I think, I, I suspect it, I don't know the ins and outs of, of the, the congressional system here, but I, but I suspect the, the power will 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 be divested from the you know the the executive branch down down through the through the rungs and that it'll get closer and closer to people who are making their their own decisions but I, I'm I'm not at all sure about that I, sh I should uh, I shouldn't weigh in with any kind of expertise <laughs> there at all with like total libertarianism um, I remember reading a story about a town in New Hampshire where they went libertarian and Vermont? it was like, what's he saying? Was it Vermont? No, I don't oh. remember what it was called though, but it, okay. well, I would have remembered Vermont, I think. Uh, a small town, oh, okay. uh, like really small. And they decided like, I don't know how they did this as a small town, but apparently they did. Um, and they didn't pay any taxes and they just didn't have sort of local government and anything like that. And it was going very well at first and things were all good. But then bears started coming and like eating everyone's pets and killing people. And it was like, well, where's the bear patrol? And, mm. and there wasn't one. Is that a concern on, a, on a global scale? <laughs> yeah. Bears versus libertarianism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the, even the contents page of the, but without the state who would dot, dot, dot. Yeah. I think the contents page of that book is just so, so massive that whenever you advance, uh, whenever one advances an argument of we should leave it up to private individuals to be able to voluntarily solve whatever, you know, whether it's bears or, or, you know, picnic baskets or yeah. like whatever it happens to be, you know, there's always, uh, there's always the argument of, well, since we don't know what the answer is now, you and I, since we can't come up with the answer in the next 10 seconds, it must just de facto fall to the the parks and rec, you know, arm sure. of the government or whatever. Um, so I, th I think that default thinking, uh, you know, it's. I think it, it lacks a little bit of imagination. Not on the not on the part of outsiders looking in and saying, uh, "Well, I can't solve the bear crisis." Um, you know, I know nothing about bears. Ask me about sharks. I'm Australian, but <laughs> I think um, I think if there's something large enough like education like you know uh, public health or you know 
infrastructure, something like that. I think that there's there's clearly enough demand from people who don't want to, you know, be walking around a bunch of stupefied, illiterate, you know, rabid zombies in, in knee deep sewage. So the, I, th I think those problems, they rise to the surface and given a long enough time period and enough incentive, then, then there'll be providers to solve those problems. I think if in the case of the bears, <laughs> I don't know the ins and outs of that particular case, but I would, I would imagine that if it was, if it was a serious enough problem and which it sounds like it very well could be very quickly, then people will get together and decide that they're going to have some kind of, you know, night watch or troop or locks for picnic baskets or trash or whatever it happens to be. Um, I don't think that, you know, in the absence of the government getting involved, everybody just like kind of lays down next to their picnic baskets and says, all right, well, I guess, it, I guess we just die now. I guess, yeah. I guess there's no other solution. I guess there's a little, there's a small element of faith required for this. And, and I yeah. guess in four or five years, we'll be able to look back and see what right. Argentina's <laughs> bear problem was. Right, right. Uh, and, and we well, you know, it's scary for them, but I, I think you're relatively optimistic. So we can only hope. Um, we both have a lot in this as, you know, right. family here and living here and things like that. Um, what about internationally? And there are, there are a few international points that might be interesting for people, one being the Falkland Islands, one being um, just a relationship with America and Trump, mm -hmm. and one being Israel. Uh, I know that Malay is sympathetic to Israel and um, wants to has talked about converting to Judaism and he reads the Torah uh, every day, just another aspect of his mm -hmm. eccentricities. Um, so yeah, internationally, what what's his deal? Uh, I think... I think again, I mean, you put a lot on the table there. Yes. <laughs> each kind of kind of um, in need of individual dissection. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think, you know, with regards to one-on-one uh, -on -one relationships be between himself and other other heads of state, let's say, um, you know, Mr. Trump is obviously not in office at, at the oh, moment yeah. and, and <laughs> may not be in in office. So, I imagine that he will work with whoever he needs to work with. Um, and, and that includes, when I say that, you know, the, the World Bank and the IMF, I mean the United States. When you work with, a, with the IMF, you have to work with the United States. They have, a, they have $30 billion worth of, of, uh, of peso-denominated debt on the central bank balance sheet here. There are things that need to be worked out economically. So he's going to have to sit down with whoever is the president of you know, these uh, either individual sovereign states or supranational organizations. Uh, like the IMF, and they're, they're going to have to work out deals there. Uh, he he may not like the answers that he gets, but uh, I think he's going to obviously try and have Argentina's um, best interests, uh, you know, at heart. Mm. With regards to uh, international trade, one of the other big differences between you know Mr. Trump and I've I've noticed that uh, many publications in the United States have taken to referring to Mr. Malay as mini Trump, hmm. um, you know, rather, I think rather lazily. I think uh, it, he is not a nationalist uh, in the way that other typical, quote unquote, far right uh, people are, or people who tend to view themselves or, or, or their parties as, uh, as, you know, on the, on the more conservative spectrum of that kind of, you know, leftist, rightist, sort of black, white dichotomy. Uh, he is, Understanding economics, he is against, uh, you know, excessive tariffs or I think any trade tariffs at all, recognizing that they're essentially a form of self-imposed economic sanction. It's very, it's very strange to live in a country, you mentioned Apple before, it's very strange to live in a country that is essentially said to Apple, you're not welcome here because we have an entrenched and embedded political interest in your competition mm. in, in Samsung. So we just... We just bar your products from coming in here. So uh, I think he recognizes that when it comes to trade, a policy of uh, open door is is um, is preferable both for the his constituents here, for Argentina as an economy, and for what Argentina can bring to the international community with her abundance of goods and resources and and so forth here. Uh, politically, I think you know he's made it clear that his government doesn't is not in favor of doing business with, for example, the Chinese government. Um, and I think he may have added the Russian government uh, to, to, to those who, with whom he's sort of, you know, not uh, super favorable towards. But uh, by the same, you know, by the same token, he has uh, said that he won't put any restrictions on individual Argentine companies 
doing deals with individual right. Chinese companies or Russian companies or, or however. And I, I think that kind of cuts a little bit more to the underlying philosophy of somebody who doesn't trust, not only doesn't trust the state, but sees the state as the kind of genesis problem here. Uh, it, you know, there's that old saying that when goods don't cross, when goods don't cross borders, soldiers will. And I think he recognizes that the best way forward, both geopolitically and economically, and those are you know, obviously very closely intertwined, is for free and open commerce between people, you know, mutually beneficial commerce that enriches both parties, uh, that is not compulsory, that is not subject to force or favoritism at the hands of governments, you know, sort of playing marionettes with their, their favorite playthings and receiving kickbacks in potato sacks of, yeah. of dollars thrown into monasteries at the 11th hour. I think, uh, you know, the idea of having free and open trade and bringing the walls down, I, I think that's something that differentiates him from, uh, you know, some of these other, from even Mr. Trump himself, who, you know, has built up that wall. Build the walls. Uh, Build the walls. Yeah. You know, Malay is Malay is very much, uh, very much independent from that. He's very pro-immigration. He's you know he's very happy to have to have people uh, come here, but he wants to deconstruct the welfare state before they do. So it, you know, it's all well and good to have people flooding your your uh, your your borders as long as they're here to stand on their own two feet and contribute to society and open businesses and you know do. You know, kind of abide by the the law of the land. But if, um, but you know, if they're coming here just because they want to get their you know their hand in the honeypot, and you know that creates friction between taxpayers domestically who are having to fund that, it sends out the wrong signal to people. Hey, come over here, and you you can sort of live off our state when our own citizens are going to have to pay for it. So there's there's social friction there. You know, there's a lot of. So I think I think. These things have to be, it's, it has to be a kind of coordinated dismantling, but at the same time, he's only got four years before he's up for re-election. So he has to kind of be pretty snappy about unraveling some of this, you know, monstrosity that is the the, the Peronist legacy state. Um, and yeah, again, he's got, he's got a lot on his plate. He's got a lot to deal with. So um, mm. it, it remains to be seen whether or not he can get that done in, or make any significant headway uh, within the next four years, enough to buy himself a little bit more more time. It's a scary time right now in Argentina. It has been for quite a while. And <laughs> let's just hope that things can improve and get better and everyone can be happier here. Uh, where would you like to send people? Uh, well, I have a, a, a substack, just my name, joelbowman.substack.com. Uh, people can go on there. And at the moment, you know, I moved down to Argentina. We we're talking just before this broadcast about a dozen years ago to uh, fulfill my lifelong goal of becoming a failed novelist, and I'm I'm still working on that. Failure is more more difficult than uh, than one might expect. So it's it's mostly kind of literary musings at the moment. But I'm I'm going to be wade wading into the socio political and economic realm a, a little more. I've I've that's kind of been my bread and butter in the past, and. Even though to maintain my own sanity, I've tried to eschew those topics to the yeah. to the extent that I can. It's uh, it's it's that old Pericles quote, isn't it? You can uh, just because you try to ignore politics, it doesn't mean that politics is going to ignore you. Thank you, Joel Bowman, for coming on the show. We filmed that in a studio in Buenos Aires. That was a lot of fun. It's nice to take the show on the road uh, and to do topical things like that. So I hope you guys did enjoy it. We went a little bit more into the political weeds than, than is typical on this show, and I quite enjoyed it. What did you guys think? Um, share it on Twitter and all those kinds of things. Please do review the show on Apple and support the show on andrewgold.locals.com. I'll see you next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.